Uh, so First Chronicles chapter 28. So David assembled at Jerusalem, all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officials of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of the property uh, and livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men and all the seasoned warriors. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and in the house of Judah my father's house, and among my father's sons he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon my son to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, It is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever, if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever." And you, Solomon, my son, know the, Lord, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. So what's the best advice that you ever received in your life? Uh, I was thinking about that question, and the best advice I was ever given was kind of a simple piece of advice, but years ago, my parents were remodeling their business, and they hired this contractor, and so uh, for whatever reason, I was helping him uh, just doing kind of simple things, just, you know, putting up drywall and stuff, and I didn't have any construction experience whatsoever, and so I was learning a little bit from him, from this contractor, and he gave me this piece of advice that has stuck with me. Uh, to this day, he said, whenever you're using a tool, whether it's a saw or a screwdriver, hammer, whatever it is, make sure you know where your left hand is. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you're using a table saw or a chop saw, you're focusing on the board that's in front of you, you're focusing on your right hand, is, assuming you're right-handed, and you're just kind of focused there, and the left hand can kind of get lost sometimes and maybe be put somewhere you know, where you could, you know, be in danger and get hurt pretty badly. And uh, every time I use a table saw or a chop saw, just about, I think about that advice, make sure I know where my left hand is. And knowing myself and the accident-prone nature of who I am, if I wasn't told that advice, I don't think I would have all five fingers. So it was a piece of advice that stuck with me for a long time. Good godly advice or wise advice has the opportunity to change our lives. But it can also change history as well. Uh, one of the most powerful pieces of advice uh, is described um, by Warren Buffett this way. In, Warren, in 2017, he told students at Columbia University, if you think about it, we're sitting here in part because of two Jewish immigrants who in 1939 in August signed the most important letter perhaps in the history of the United States. He's talking about a piece of advice that was given to uh, President Roosevelt at the time. Uh, there was this 
scientist named Leo Zillard, and he was kind of tracking the German nuclear program, and he had fears that the Germans would be able to get enough uranium to create an atomic bomb. Now, in actuality, they were a long way off from that, but they didn't know that. And so they were trying to alert the government of the United States to get ready, get prepared, uh, make sure you have these weapons available. Um, and they were unable to make any headway. And so Leo Ziller decided he was going to contact Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was a pacifist. He wasn't interested in war whatsoever. But Ziller was able to convince him to reach out to the president. And at this time, Albert Einstein was kind of a rock star in the scientific world, and he was well-respected. And so Zillard kind of wrote this, lo this, this letter and encouraged Albert Einstein to sign it. And so it was sent to the president, and the president took the advice. The pr president formed a committee to uh, look into nuclear uh, weapons and eventually led to the Manhattan Project, eventually led to the end of World War II. It was an incredible piece of advice that changed history. Uh, another piece of advice that changed history, but, also, but in kind of a more whimsical way. Uh, when you think about Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, uh, President of the United States, he was a uh, candidate for president in 1860, running for the Republican Party. And as he was campaigning, he got some campaign advice from an 11-year-old girl named Grace Bedell. She wrote this letter to him. Dear Sir... My father has just come home from the fair and brought home your picture. And Mr. Hannibal Hamlin's, I'm a little girl, only 11 years old, but want you, uh, want you to be President of the United States very much. So I hope you won't think me very bold to write to such a great man as you are. Have you any little girls about as large as I am? If so, give them my love and tell her to write, and write to me if you cannot answer this letter. I have got four brothers and part of them will vote for you anyway. And if you will let your whiskers grow, I will try and get the rest of them to vote for you. You would look a great deal better for your face is so thin. All the ladies like whiskers, and they would tease their husbands to vote for you. And if I was a man, I would vote for you too. But I will try to get everyone to vote for you that I can. I think that rail fence around your picture makes it look very pretty. So that image of Abraham Lincoln that we know of today with that you know big beard, around his face, it all goes back to Grace Bedell and the letter that she wrote to President Lincoln. Uh, in fact, he was hesitant at first. He'd never grown a beard before. He thought he might look a little bit silly with the beard. But finally, he took her advice, and on the way to his inauguration in 1861, he actually stopped in Westfield, New York, and told Grace Bedell how he had taken her advice. Good advice has the power to transform our lives. It has the power to transform history. And uh, I think this passage that we're looking at is, is very interesting because in this passage, uh, David is offering advice to his son. And we're kind of just going to focus on verses 9 to 10 of this chapter. And David is off offering advice to his son. Uh, and I think this is important, first of all, because of who David was. David was this great king who was chosen, a man after God's own heart, who was chosen to be kind of the picture uh, of the tr true king who would reign forever. And so he had this incredible uh, opportunity, how he was used by God in incredible ways, and we think of all the ways that he was used by God. But also, I think his advice is important because he knew not only how to succeed, but he also knew how to fail. You know, he experienced some great sin in his life. He sinned in incredible ways. He experienced God's grace in incredible ways. And so 
I think he's a person that's, that's worthy of listening to. And so in this, the, at the end of this passage I just read, verses 9 to 10, we get kind of an intimate look as David is sharing his, his most important wisdom, sharing his advice with his son Solomon as David is about to exit from the scene. And I think if we take this advice to heart, I think it can really change our lives and transform us. So there's three things I see that David tells Solomon in this passage. He tells him first, know God and seek his presence. It says in verse 9, know the God of your father. And then he goes on and says, if you seek him, he will be found by you. Here David warns Solomon against the dangers of distraction and diversion. He warns them against the, the dangers of distraction and diversion. As we look in the scriptures and as we experience the Christian life ourselves, there's one thing that's true. We never become godly by accident. See, all of us have a sin nature. We all have this tendency to go astray. And if left to our own devices, devices if we're not intentional, our kind of natural trajectory will be away from God and to sin. And so what David tells Solomon is he tells him, you need to be intentional about your relationship with God. You need to know the God of your father. You need to seek his heart if you're going to find him. And the same thing is true for us. We need to seek the heart of God. We can't become godly by accident. It never happens. We need to be intentional about our relationship with Christ. And we live in a world of distraction and diversion. Uh, I was thinking a story that, that illustrates this. Several years ago, I went on a missions trip to uh, one, one, one to the uh, Dominican Republic and one to Costa Rica. Um, and one of the, the biggest things that was cool about that experience, of course, you know, serving the people and all that stuff was great. But another thing that was kind of an added benefit of it was just kind of an opportunity to unplug. Uh, at that time, you couldn't get cell phone access, at least not reasonably. Um, I think at one point, you could send a text message for like 50 cents or a dollar per text message. Um, there was no internet access. Uh, they, you know, they might have had, I think they had one computer and kind of limited Wi-Fi in one area that was kind of slow, that kind of worked sometimes, didn't work others. There was one phone that, you, you know, everybody had to kind of stand in line and wait for, or pay 10 cents a minute or whatever. And so you're just kind of completely unplugged from the world. And I remember just going and, you know, you didn't, have the opportunity to do anything other than serve, spend time with people, and spend time with God. And, and there was something refreshing about that and, and encouraging about that. And, and fast forward, you know, 15, 16 years or whatever the case may be, and, you know, sometimes now it, it's different, you know, and I've talked to people who've gone on these trips, and it's not always the case, but, you know, now you can get cell phone access pretty reasonably. You can get access to data. You can have your phone there with an international plan pretty reasonably. And so now sometimes people go on these trips and instead of kind of spending time with God and spending time with one another, they're looking down at their phones. And, and I think that just kind of typifies, it's kind of a picture of our age. We live in an age of distraction and diversion where we always have to be doing something. And sometimes the things of God come kind of are put by the wayside. You know, and sometimes we kind of convince ourselves that we don't have time to spend with God. And I don't think that's really true. Uh, imagine you ask somebody, imagine you ask somebody after the service, hey, uh, I was wondering if we could grab lunch sometime. And he or she responds and says, I'd love to, but 
Um, this, is, this coming week is going to be busy. I got a birthday party after that. Um, I got, you know, Thanksgiving coming up after that. Then there's Christmas, and I got to do a lot of Christmas shopping. And I got all these things going on. So maybe, like, in the new year, maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe we could get together. Now, that person might be busy. They might say they don't have time. But really, when you, it comes down to it, they don't have time for you. You know, and that's kind of how we deal with our relationship with God sometimes. We all have the same amount of time. We all have time. We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have the same amount of time. It's what are we spending our time on? And sometimes we say we're too busy for God, and it's not that we're too busy for God. It's that our relationship with Him is not that important. I mean, imagine if we treated our other relationships like we treat our relationship with God. Imagine if my wife came up to me today and said, I really need to talk to you. And I said, well, I got a lot going on. Um, maybe, maybe tomorrow morning I'll get up for 15 or 20 minutes. Maybe if I get up early, I'll talk to you for 15 or 20 minutes in the morning. And, and if that doesn't work out, maybe the next day I'll be able to talk to you for 15 or 20 minutes. That's not a good relationship, right? And yet somehow we feel like that's okay to do with God. It's like, oh, maybe I'll spend time with God tomorrow morning if I happen to wake up in time. If I happen to have a few minutes and our relationship with God puts, gets put by the wayside and as a result we kind of drift towards apathy and drift towards sin because nobody becomes godly by accident. And so we treat our relationship with God like that and yet God's, uh, God desires a true relationship with us and we need to make time for that relationship. Uh, in his book Faith That Endures there's a man by the name of, of Ronald Boyd McMillan, and he tells of his interactions with this famous uh, persecuted uh, pastor from China named Wang Midyo, and one of the uh, interactions that he had with him, he describes this way. Uh, Migdo asks him, how do you walk with God, young man? And Migdo listed off a list of disciplines, such as Bible study and prayer, to which Migdo mischievously retorted and said, Wrong answer. To walk with God, you must walk at a walking pace. To walk with God, you must go at a walking place. Macmillan says this, the words of Wang Migno touched me to the core. How can I talk about the Christian life as walking with God when I so often live it at a sprint? Of course, we run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. That we may fail to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is inviting me to walk with him. Too often I find myself running for him. And there's a difference. So if we're going to experience joy and significance in our relationship with Christ, we need to slow down and spend time with him. And I get that we're all busy. We have lots of things going on. Some of us have a lot of responsibilities, some more than others. And some of us just have trouble spending time with God. But we make time for the things that are important. Of course, the bills don't play today. But, you know, you think about, let's say I offered you tickets to the box, a box, a suite at the Bills game next week. If I were to offer you those tickets, what would you do to, to be able to go there? I mean, you'd probably clear your schedule to be able to go to the Bills game because it's important. Enjoy watching the Bills. We make time for the things that are important to us. And, and David encourages Solomon, know God, seek his presence. A.W. Tozer 
puts it this way, as the sailor locates his position on the sea by shooting the sun, so we may get our moral bearing by looking at God. We must begin with God. We are right when and only when we stand in the right position relative to God. And we are wrong so far as and as long as we stand in any other position. Knowing and loving God should be the supreme focus of our life. And uh, I think David shows, tells David, uh, Solomon something even further in this past, and, th and that is that he has to appropriate his faith himself. David says, you need to know the God of your father. You can't rest on my relationship with God. I have a relationship with God, but you need to know God yourself. You need to have a real personal relationship with God like I had. And I think about that, and I think the sad reality is that sometimes Christians can have more of a second-hand faith than a first-hand faith. And what I mean by that is that Christians can sometimes maybe listen to a lot of Christian messages, maybe read Christian books, but don't spend time in God's Word, don't spend time cultivating a relationship with God. So I have a picture on the screen here. This is a picture of the Grand Canyon. It's a beautiful picture, right? I mean, it's a picture you might see on uh, your screensaver, on your computer, maybe on your phone. Uh, maybe it's even a picture that you'd put with a quote on your wall of your office. It's a great picture, and it's, you know, something that's nice to look at. But if I were to ask you, hey, I have, I'm going to pay for you to go to the Grand Canyon. I'm going to pay all of your expenses to go to the Grand Canyon. How would you respond to that? Would you say, well, I don't really need to go to the Grand Canyon because I've seen a picture of it. I've seen a picture of it. I don't need to go. Of course you wouldn't say that. Because seeing a picture, it's a, it's a great picture, but it's far different than experiencing the wonder and the magnitude of what the Grand Canyon is. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. Looking at a picture is great. Listening to a, a Christian message, listening to God's Word preached, it's great. Reading Christian books, awesome. But it's only a picture. It's not the same thing as experiencing God for ourselves, of having a, a real personal relationship with him. And that's what God wants for us. And that's what David encourages his son to do, is to know God himself personally and to seek his heart as the supreme goal and passion of his life. The second thing he tells them is the, to obey God completely. He tells them, obey God completely. And he lays out a principle for us here, and that is that a divided heart is a troubled heart. A divided heart is a troubled heart. Uh, when we fail to obey God completely with all of our hearts, we're kind of going to be miserable because we experience kind of the worst of both worlds. Because uh, on the one hand, we're not experiencing the joy of the Holy Spirit. We don't have joy in our relationship with God. And so we feel guilty. Maybe we feel ashamed. We feel kind of apathetic. Maybe we feel like, you know, we can't or aren't qualified to do the things that God calls us to do. So on the one hand, we feel that. And on the other hand, we don't even enjoy the temporary satisfaction that sin offers. And so we're just kind of miserable because we're doing the wrong things and we're there's no joy. There's no satisfaction. I think of the story of the rich young ruler, Luke chapter 18. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to know what he should do to inherit eternal life. Jesus asks him some questions, and uh, the young ruler describes how he's kept all the commandments since the time he was, he was young. And uh, Jesus, kind of knowing what his idol was, says, 
one thing you lack, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And apparently he's not willing to do that. And look what it says in Luke chapter 18, verse 23. It says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. That's a heart that's conflicted. On the one hand, he knew that Jesus was who he said he was. He'd seen the miracles. He believed in Jesus. He believed in God's power. But on the other hand, he loved his money. And so his heart was conflicted. His heart was torn in two different directions. And the end result was he walks away extremely sad. It's a miserable place to be in. And sadly, it's the place where Solomon ended up. Despite David's warnings, this is where Solomon ends up. Look at what it says in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned, his heart, turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Notice the passage, the word that's repeated twice in that passage, holy. He did not wholly follow the Lord. He did at one time or another. There were times where he seemed like he was dedicated to the Lord. And yet this man who experienced so much, I mean, he, he had the foresight to ask God for wisdom. He was the wisest man to ever live. And then in his old age, he goes and follows after other gods. It's a heart that's conflicted, a heart that's divided. And throughout his life, that's what we see. It's on the one hand, he's like, he's trying to follow the Lord. And then on the other hand, he's following after idols and going his own way. And the result is destruction. The result is the, the, the kingdom is kind of separated. He experienced incredible hardship and doesn't experience the joy of the Lord. He didn't wholly follow the Lord. David warns him against this. And he says, the Lord searches all hearts and knows what's in the heart of man. He understands every plan and every thought. God sees what's inside, which means there's no room for pretense. He knows what's in our heart. Despite what we might, you know, the facade that we might put on to those around us, despite the fact that maybe we might feel more spiritual than the person sitting next to us, God sees what's in our hearts. And he knows if our heart is to seek him. If our heart is to obey him with all of our hearts. And the only way to experience true joy and true satisfaction is through following him with all of our hearts. Not to be divided in our purposes. There's a story of two brothers from New Year, nearly 200 years ago. They were two Scottish brothers. Uh, John and David Livingstone. Uh, John made it his ambition in life to make the most money possible, to have the most power in life, and he, he did so. He was successful. But under the old edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, John Livingston is listed in the encyclopedia as simply the brother of David. David had a different goal. David knelt down and prayed one day, surrendering himself to Christ and resolved, I will place no value on anything I have or possess, unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. The inscription over his burial place in Westminster Abbey reads, For 30 years his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize. On his 59th birthday, David Livingston wrote, My Jesus, my King, my life, 
my all. I again dedicate my whole self to thee. That's a life of significance and commitment. And so David encourages his son, make Christ your priority. Obey him fully. Don't have a heart that's divided and distracted and disturbed. Final piece of advice he gives is to walk, to confidently walk in humility. He says, confidently walk in humility. And when I say those words, it seems almost like an oxymoron, right? You know, in our culture, when we think about confidence, often we think about bravado, like someone who's kind of really sure of him or herself, who feels like they have it all together, who's, you know, confident in their own abilities, uh, someone who's self-sufficient in themselves, feel like they don't need anybody else. And then we think about humility sometimes, at least in our culture, we think about the humble person as the person who's like, oh, I'm just a vile human being, I can't even see the light of day. And we think of like, and that's how they saw it in the ancient world as well. Someone who's confident, has power and authority, almost cocky, and someone who's humble, is dejected, has low self-esteem, etc. But that's not what the scriptures call us to. That's not how the scriptures define confidence or humility. And we see in this passage that David calls his son to both. He says first to be humble. He says, be careful now. Be careful now. Why should Solomon be humble? First of all, because of who he was. Chapter 22, verse 5, David says that his son is young and inexperienced. He doesn't have the resources that he needs to carry out the task that God has called him to. Second, the task that God has called him to. God is calling him to an incredible task. Calling him to build this ornate temple that was to be the kind of the place of a place of prayer where God would meet with the nation with the, with Israel and, and in turn with the nations. And so it was an incredible calling that God placed on Solomon's life, and it, it was an incredible thing that he was called to do. In, in today's age, it would, I was thinking about kind of a modern parallel, and I think it would be kind of like, you know, say the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, who owns Tesla and soon to be Twitter and a lot of other things. Let's say that he came to you and said, I need you to design and build my new Tesla. That would be a pretty overwhelming thing to, to think about. And, and that's kind of what God is asking Solomon to do. He's inexperienced, he's unskilled, and yet God is calling him to create the greatest masterpiece that's ever been created in Israeli history. But he's also called to confidence as well. David says, be strong and do it. And there's confidence because of three things. Number one, David has prepared the way. David has helped him. David has prepared all the resources that he's, that he's needed, gotten a lot of the raw materials. Solomon has a lot, of the, a lot of people to help him. He's not doing it by himself. But most importantly, he has the promise that the God who is faithful is going to be with him. The God who is faithful is going to carry this task out. And he's not doing it on his own, that the, God's spirit is going to lead him and give him the power that he needs. And I think as believers, we're called to the same thing, confidence and humility. We're called to humility, first of all, because of who we are. We're broken. We're sinners. We don't have it all together. We can't do the things that God calls us to do. We're also called to humility because of the things that God calls us to do. He calls us to do things that are, from a human standpoint, either extremely difficult or, most of the time, impossible. He calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. He calls us to go further, to love our enemies. 
He calls us to raise children in the Lord. He calls us to care for the orphan and the widow. He calls us to proclaim His name in our workplaces. He calls us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He calls us to do great things for Him, to build great things for Him. He calls us to all kinds of different things. And usually if God calls us to do something, it's usually something we can't do on our own. And so there's a humility there because of who we are. We're broken. We're sinners. We don't have the resources that we need. And oftentimes the things that God calls us to do are things that we humanly can't do. But we also can walk forward in confidence. Not in our own skills, but in the presence of God that lives inside of us. As believers in Christ, we have the promise that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, lives inside of us. We have the promise that Paul told the Philippians that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete us. We have the promise that uh, Paul told the Ephesians that God has prepared good works in advance. He's prepared the good works for us to do. He's prepared our lives. Out. He's, he's set the stage for our lives. And so we have that confidence that God is inside of us, God is going before us, and that God is faithful. And so we can be humble and confident at the same time. Humble because of who we are and the task that God calls us to, but confident in the fact of who God is and the fact that His presence is inside of us. And so Solomon, or David tells Solomon to walk confidently with humility. So recap again of the advice that he gives to Solomon. Know God, seek His presence, obey God completely, confidently walk in humility. Think about the sports world and, you know, as the season goes along, whether it's football or baseball or whatever sport it is, uh, oftentimes you get to kind of the midpoint of the season and there's buyers and there's sellers. There's people who are trying to uh, trade away their good players to maybe get draft picks and, and other teams that are trying to kind of get new players. And sometimes you'll have, maybe it's, a, maybe it's kind of an older cast of stars where the team is really good. And, but the kind of the window on their, you know, their championship window, as they say, is kind of closing. And so sometimes what they'll do is they'll go all in on winning. So they'll trade away all their draft picks to get the best team for this year as they can. Uh, they'll spend whatever money is necessary to get the best players. And they are just all in on that task of winning. And I think of this passage and the advice that David gives Solomon and I think when it comes down to it, when you put this all together, I think that David is telling Solomon, be all in when it comes to your relationship with God. Be all in when it comes to loving, serving, and obeying Christ. Don't have a heart that's divided. Don't have a heart that seeks other things. Walk confidently, walk humbly, seeking the presence of God in everything that you do. When I was in high school, uh, I felt like God was calling me into ministry. I wasn't quite sure yet. Um, I felt like that was what God wanted me to do. He'd given me a desire for His Word. But I wasn't really ready to commit to that. And so I decided I was going to do something that was kind of safe. I decided I was going to go to a school that was very affordable. I got some scholarships. It was just about 10 minutes away from my house. could still live at home. wasn't a lot of commitment there. And I decided I was going to study psychology and communications. And uh, the reason I decided I was going to study psychology and communications was I figured, well, it could help me out in my ministry career maybe. 
and uh, maybe this ministry thing won't work out. Maybe I won't want to do it. And if that's the case, maybe I can get a job and become a psychologist or I can you know, do something in media at a news station or whatnot. And I can still get a good job even if I don't decide I want to go into ministry. And so that's what I did. I went to Niagara University and uh, I did really well. I loved, you know, I had great professors. I had a really good experience there. Um, in my introductory psychology class, I got... Um, my teacher told me I got some of the highest scores that he'd ever seen in that class. So he asked me to be his research assistant, and everything was just going great. I enjoyed everything there. Great experience, but something wasn't right. I felt like this turmoil in my heart. And so I, you know, had taken that job and, you know, was, you know, kind of getting my feet into kind of the academic world there, and I knew I wasn't in the right place, even though everything was going well. I felt like God was telling me, you need to stop having backup plans. Faith is not about having backup plans. Faith is about trusting in God. And so I felt like he's saying, you have to stop having backup plans, saying, oh, maybe you'll do this, maybe you'll do this. Maybe if I don't come through for you, you'll be okay, and you need to go in, all in in your relationship with me. And for me, that meant serving him in ministry. And so I left this, that school that I was at, Niagara University, and, and started studying God's Word and then went to seminary and been serving in ministry ever since. But I think about that, and that was kind of a one-time thing, but I think that God calls us to the same thing each and every day. He calls us to be all in on our relationship with Him, to be all in on loving, serving, and knowing Him. And He asks us the question, are you all in today? Will you trust me today with your family? Not having your own backup plans, not looking to control things with your own wisdom. Will you trust me with your finances today? Will you put all the weight of who you are on me today? It's a hard place to be sometimes, but it's also a place of freedom and joy. Think about going back to sports. One of the most dangerous sports is motorsports. I, Probably many of us, I, I never forget where I was when, you know, Dale Earnhardt Jr. died. And, you know, accidents happen. It's a very dangerous sport. One day, they were doing an interview with the great uh, race car driver, Mario Andretti. And they asked him the following question. They said, what makes a talented race car driver? Is it fearlessness, reaction, judgment, or strategy? As the only race car driver to win the Daytona 500, Indianapolis 500, the Formula One World Championship, fearlessness, reaction, judgment, and strategy are all talents that Andretti had in abundance. But which was most important? Andretti responded and said this, all of the above. But then he said, added this, plus burning desire and confidence. I say burning desire because of the risk involved. If you want something so badly, you have a burning desire to do it. Then you aren't distracted by fear or risk or anything else. Do we have that kind of passion for our relationship with Christ? And I think that's what David, the man after God's own heart, is calling his son to. Be all in. Don't be divided. Don't be distracted. Be all in on your relationship with Christ. And so that's the question we're left with today. Are we all in when it comes to knowing, loving, and obeying Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you 
that you were all in on loving us, that while we were yet sinners, you came to the earth and died for us so that we might experience life, and that you offer us freedom and joy that's found in a relationship with you. Lord, we know that the call to follow you is not a call of drudgery or lifelessness, but a call to joy and experience and the adventure of following you and knowing you with all of our hearts. Lord, in a world that's distracted, a world that's divided, help us to be focused on you. Help your name and your renown to be the desire of our hearts. Help us to make time for you to walk with you at a walking pace, to put margin in our lives so that we could spend with you, to obey you completely in everything that we do, and to walk confidently, but also with humility, knowing that you're faithful, and then knowing that you're with us every step of the way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.